Good morning. It's good to see everybody. How are you doing? Everybody doing well? Let me pray for us as we get started. Uh, a lot to cover today. Um, limited time. And so I will pray and, uh, and we'll jump in. Lord Jesus, we uh, thank you for the blessing, uh, the honor, the privilege that we have to be together again this week, uh, drawn to this place by you, uh, seeking to be transformed by you, uh, and surrendering our hearts and our minds, our souls, um, all that we are to you. And so we ask that in the precious uh, few minutes that we have, uh, that you make eternal use of the time, uh, make eternal use of the words that I speak, and most important, make eternal use of your words and your scripture. Uh, may they do your work uh, of changing us into your image. And we ask this, not that we can make a great name for ourselves or that we can be made much of, but that our lives reflect a, a worth and an importance of you, and that you may be, may be made much of in our, our lives and our families. We ask this in the name of your precious Son. Amen. Amen. One of our favorite things as a family to do uh, is to walk around the neighborhood. Uh, we live in the north side area around the school, and so we've got this giant loop that we walk, you know, across Hermitage and through the neighborhoods and all the way around. And we like to do it as a family and just take family walks and look around and get to know the neighborhood, uh, get to know people as they're out walking and their dogs and hanging out with their kids or working in their yards. And uh, we, get a, we get an idea of what's going on, you know, what, what houses are in need of desperate repair or have been abandoned and what people have, what needs, and, and what's just going on in the neighborhood. So it's been kind of fun to just walk and look and talk and, and in a sense, know how to pray, more specifically for the place that we live. But one of my favorite things to do in walking around the neighborhood uh, is observe this one particular car uh, that is parked in our neighborhood that is covered almost 100% by bumper stickers. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those cars. Uh, the north side is full of characters. So all kinds of characters that live around here. Um, th- there are, there are perf- performing puppeteers and uh, weather chasers and all kinds of fun stuff in the north side. Um, but this particular person, and I have not had a chance to meet the owner of the car, um, has a car that's almost three-quarters covered in bumper stickers, and it absolutely fascinates me. And so every time we walk through the neighborhood and we walk by the car, I get a new opportunity to look at the car and, and see what the bumper stickers are. And I try not to take them all in at one time so that every time I walk by, there's something else I can look at and, and, and enjoy. Um, and it's kind of a, a little pet peeve of mine. I wanted to teach a class on bumper sticker theology for years. Um, I, I've, I've collected them. Aaron had to suffer through it. I wanted to gather. I mean, I wanted to teach on these things, but I just haven't had the chance. But walking this past week with the family by this car, looking at the car again for another bumper sticker to ponder and, and meditate on, um, it was really funny. In, in light of what we've been talking about the last few weeks in Colossians and now Ephesians as well, about how the gospel transforms our marriages and the way that we relate to each other as husband and wives, passed this car onto this bumper sticker, and it said, "Husbands are living proof that women can take a joke." And I thought, <laughs> "Husbands are, are living proof that women can take a joke." And I thought, I don't know if it's the case with all the bumper stickers, but there's probably a story behind that one. I don't think you just stick that one on your car without some type of story or experience behind it. And so I was really fascinated and curious about what the story could be, but I have never met the owner, so I've never had a chance to talk. But the reality of it is, whatever story is behind that bumper sticker is one that's repeated at a much greater rate today than we would ever hope, ever dream, um, or ever desire. The reality of it is, 
in this room, if you were to profess to be a Bible-believing Christian or a person who is a follower of Christ, culturally right now, the odds are you have a greater chance of getting divorced than someone who claims to have no belief in God or to not be someone who consciously follows Jesus. The most recent statistics say that the the church is divorcing at a rate of 54%. Culture at large, those who portray no faith association, is around 51, 52%. Now, all kinds of things go into the figures. You know, more and more and more people are not getting married, just living together, so that kind of skews the things. That's happening in the church too, and the reality of it is what makes it even worse, no matter what things lump into the numbers and whatever validity you put in that, the divorce rate in the church is escalating amongst a generation that has decided that something that they gave themselves to is no longer important to them, and the largest chunk of divorces that we see in the church right now are amongst people who have been married over 20 years. The, the generation, the baby boomer generation, or whatever label you want to call it, that built the, the institution of the evangelical church over the last 40 years that established so many of the churches and ministries and programs and organizations and nonprofits that, that we participate with that have done such an amazing job of training and, and shaping the next generation of churches, they are full of the largest generation of Americans in, to date who are looking at themselves and looking at their spouses and looking at their lives and and picking up their ball and walking away. Have you ever played when you were a kid? We used to call it sandlot. I don't know if you played sports when you were a kid, but you used to be able to go out and take your ball out to the field and dig your heel in the ground and draw the boundaries on the field and call it sandlot because when you get tired of people not playing by your rules, when people don't do what you want them to do, and when you can't win based on however you think you should, you pick up your ball and walk away. And the statistics are saying, and the reality is proving out, that more and more and more people are looking at each other. They're waking up next to one another and no longer recognizing the grace that God has given them and the call that God has given them as a family to cultivate his character, to cultivate his image, to cultivate his reflection in their lives and in one another's lives and through them to cultivate the reflection of the image of God to a world that's watching to say, is God's wisdom really wise or or is it really foolish? And at a rate of 54%, the church is declaring to a culture that's in desperate need of some level of understanding and transformation that God's wisdom, God's purpose, God's plans, God's realities are, are really vacant. And they really might not be wise at all. And so we've taken a couple of weeks to to step back and to look at how the gospel transforms our understanding of what it means to be a, a family, what it means to be a husband and a wife, what it means specifically last week to be a wife who recognizes the responsibility and the, and the authority and the weight that God has put on the husband and has a disposition of heart to align herself with the calling of God on this family and be a helpmate made for that man, one complimented that man's strengths and enhancing that man's weaknesses in the image of God that this mission, that this purpose that God has given the marriage might be moved forward, that his glory might be made known, that his image might be cultivated in that man and, and in that life and in those kids and in the places that God has sent them. And, and then this week, we're, we're going to step back and we're, we're going to kind of zoom the lens down a little bit. 
And we're going to focus a little bit on the men because the reality of it is the responsibility for the health, the well-being, and the future of the family is squarely on the shoulders of the men. The 54% divorce rate in the church, it's the man's fault. It's the husband's fault. He's the one that has to bear the responsibility. He's the one that has to bear the weight of standing before God and, and bearing proof to the reality of the gospel transforming not only his life, but the life of his family. And so if the men don't get this right, if the men don't understand how the gospel reshapes their understanding of who they are and what God has called them to do as a man and now as a husband, we're in for a rocky road for the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years. So... Let me read something to you, and then we'll jump back in the Bible. This is by a guy named Gary Ricucci, and, and it was one of, these, one of these sentences, one of these little paragraphs that was like a, a light bulb to me not too long ago. He said, The more that we learn about the grace and the love of God displayed in the gospel, the better we can demonstrate such grace and love to our wives. And so listen, men who are in here, we're going to keep reading. This is for you if you're husbands. This is for you if you're not married. This is for you to take notes on to understand what it means to, and pre- to prepare yourself to be the kind of man that God is calling you to be. And listen to what he says. He says, husbands, men, those who will be husbands, you are called to sacrifice for the sake of your wives. Sacrifice for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is our example and our motivation. The role of a husband doesn't begin at the altar. It begins at the cross. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians chapter 5. We've been working our way through the book of Colossians, and we we hit this spot as you're turning there in Colossians chapter 3 where Paul makes this encouragement because of what he has grounded this church in and the nature of the gospel and its power to change them and and to absolutely reshape their identity. He gives them these encouragements and and really these commands of of how the gospel should relate to the way they love one another. And and we're actually flipping over to Ephesians to look at Ephesians because Ephesians is a very similar letter to Colossians, but he kind of unpacks things a little bit. So if Colossians is kind of the short cliff note summary statement of what he's after, Ephesians is a little more developed. So we're taking some time to look at that one and unpack it. So if you've opened it up, Ephesians chapter 5, the first few things we're going to say, we are going to, in some sense, review what we said last week because, you know, March Madness started, so you forget. Um, The weather has improved, so you forget. And you're breathing, so you most likely forgot. So we're going to review what God says to the husbands, to the men, about what it means to love their wives the way that Christ has loved the church. And we're going to move forward from that to some more things Paul says about this. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So what are the characteristics of the way that Jesus has loved the church? What are the characteristics of the ways in which we as men should love our wives and love our families? One, we should love our wives graciously, just as God in Christ has loved us graciously. This is what we have unpacked for months in the, letter, in the book of Colossians, that God's love for us in Jesus is not based on our performance. 
It is not based on what we do to earn God's love and to earn God's favor and to earn God's care towards us, but it's absolutely based on his love for us in Jesus and him pouring himself out graciously on us while we were still sinners. Paul said Christ Jesus died for us. God loves his church in Jesus graciously. And we are to love our wives with the same grace and the same compassion with which God has loved us, which means your love towards her is not based on her performance. It means your love towards her and your sacrifice towards her, your care towards her, your encouragement of her, your initiative to lead her is not based on her performance or her behavior or her attitude or her response to your efforts and your love. You are to love her graciously. And if I'm honest, it's really probably scary and and very tangibly painful to think about how often my encouragement of Aaron or my love of Aaron, my service towards Aaron, my care of Aaron is really based upon what I feel about her at any particular moment based on how she may have responded to me or done something to me or said something to me, whatever it may be. If I'm pleased, then I pursue and love and care and serve. If I'm displeased, I withdraw. If I'm displeased or frustrated or, 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 or whatever the emotion may be, you know what you do. You know, you, you give a look, you turn away, you withhold care, you withhold encouragement, you withhold conversation, you withhold whatever it is you think will, will sting the most until whatever it is you're looking for is given back to you and you feel good about yourself again or you feel right again or she's loved you the way that you want again and now you can pursue her and love her and care for her. That's Sandlot. That's Sandlot. God says that we are to love our wives the way that God has loved us in Christ. And it's graciously. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on what someone has done or she has done that then earns our particular care and affection. We're to love her graciously. We're to love her redemptively. The love that God has shown us in Jesus is a love that, that smart people call efficacious love or, or effective love or redemptive love. That the, As God pours his love out on us in Jesus, his grace and his care and his compassion, the gospel changes us. It recreates us. We grow, we mature, we develop, we become people who reflect the image and the character of God in dramatically new and more clear ways as his love works on us and changes us. And the way that we are to love our wives and care for our wives and serve our wives is to be a redemptive love and an effective or efficacious love, which means that as you love your wife, as you serve your wife, as you lead your wife, as you love her as Christ has loved you, she is to be transformed and changed by the love that you show her, by the way in which you love her, which means contrary to what actually is happening in the church, as men and women are giving themselves to one another under God's grace as husband and wife, after 20, 30, 40 years, we shouldn't see an increase in the rate of divorces. We should see an increase in the rate of the beauty and the character and the splendor of God in the families through the husband and through the wife who has given himself up to her to shape her, to love her, to care for her, to serve her. Your love is to be effective, it's to be redemptive. Let, let, me, let me give you some questions that you think about. We talked about this last week and I don't want to take too long. So here's some questions that you can think about about how you're, how you're doing here. Do you faithfully pray for your wife? 
Do you pray for your wife that Christ Jesus might be glorified in her and that she might know a greater measure of his love and grace? Do you pray that for your wife? To use Paul's language, do you wash her with the water of God's word? Or do you compromise her growth in godliness because of your pride, your selfishness, or a fear that keeps you from this God-given responsibility? Do you lead your wife into active involvement and service in the church? Do you lead her in understanding the importance of serving the kingdom of God? Do you constantly remind your wife of the gospel of grace and God's active goodness on our behalf? Your love, your leadership, your care, your sacrifice for your wife is to be an effective and redemptive love. What's another characteristic? Well, to lead her effectively and redemptively, you're going to have to love her specifically. You're going to have to love her with what Peter calls understanding or knowledge. In 1 Peter 3, when Peter talks to the church about husbands loving their wives and leading their wives, he says, Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Love her with understanding. To love her specifically, to love her redemptively, to love her effectively, to love her with grace, you're going to have to know who she is. You're going to have to know what makes her tick. You're going to have to know what her hopes are, what her fears are, what her dreams are, what her anxieties are, what her worries are, what her joys are. You're going to have to know who she is. The worst thing I could ever do, and it's so hard for me because it's contrary to my instinct when I get up here, the worst thing I could ever do for you is to tell you the ways in which I seek to try to love my wife as imperfectly as I do. That's the worst thing that I could do for you. I could never serve you by telling you how I try to love my wife because she's my wife not yours. And I think what happens is out of good intentions and and a hope to see men develop and to see husbands take shape and to love their families and love their wives, we give them all these things that they should do. We stand up and we say, well, this is what I do to love my wife. And if you want to love your wife, do this. No, she's not, that's not your wife. You need to know what makes her tick. You need to know how, how, ask her this, how have I loved you most specifically in the past? And then listen, Let her tell you. Let her tell you. You need to know who she is. You need to know what God is doing in her heart, how he's shaping her, how she connects to him. And you need to be about cultivating that connection and that development to love her redemptively, to love her effectively, graciously. You've got to love her specifically. You have to love your wife. Listen to this, one of my favorite things. Trimper Longman and Dan Allender said this. It's a great book called Intimate Allies. They said, to love your wife truly and rightly, you must have a vision of how your wife is different from every other woman on the face of the earth. You need to study her. Be captured by her potential giftedness, her burdens, and her passions. Learn what it means to draw out her uniqueness so that she can live for God's glory in a way that no one else on earth can or should do. You need to love your wife specifically with understanding. How else did God in Christ love the church? He, he loved us sacrificially. Jesus just did not give what he had. He, he gave himself. To love your wife the way that Christ has loved the church means that you should, your wife, let's say it this way, should never have to sacrifice more or before you. 
She is not just entitled to what you have, she is entitled to you. And to love her as Christ has loved the church means that you lay down your life, your rights, your self-centered desires, that you might love her and see the glory of God cultivated in her. To love her like Christ is to love her sacrificially. And most probably, they're all important. Most, I'll say important because it's probably the most deficient in the place where the majority of us go wrong. We talked about it last week and we'll talk more about it this week. To love your wife with a Christ has loved the church is to love her by leading her in sacrifice in grace and in effectiveness. And the way that you love your wife by leading her, we talked about it last week, is by taking the initiative and the responsibility of the role of the role and the authority that God has given you in your family. God did not wait for the church to decide that we were ready to know him and love him. And, and he did not wait until we got our act together and we were doing all the things that we were supposed to do and saying all the things that we were supposed to do. The music's all set and we're ready now to worship him. Now come, Jesus, we're, we're ready for you. God in Christ came into the midst of a people who were not looking to be saved from their sin. They were looking to be saved from an emperor and from a country that they thought they needed to be rid of so that they could be the people they were supposed to be. And God came and said, no, the most important thing, your greatest need is not rescue from Rome. It's salvation from yourselves and your sin. And he came and, and in his own initiative, not by our own desire, but by his own initiative, he came and took on the form of man, laying aside all the rights and privileges that were his as God in heaven. And he came and he lived the life that we were created to live before God. And then he died on the cross for our sin to pay the price for the life that we chose to live instead, all by his own initiative, that he might pour his grace out upon us, that we might be reconciled to God. And if you are going to love your wife the way that Christ has loved the church, you are going to have to take the initiative to cultivate the healing, the development, the growth, the maturity, the care, and the love that's to be reflected of the gospel in your wife and in your family. It's on you. It is not up to her. It is on you. You will stand before God one day and give an account for the spiritual well-being of your family, including your wife and the rest of your kids. And just as they will have to stand before God and answer for their own relationship before him, you as the head of the family will stand before God for how that's been cultivated in your wife and in your kids. Just as I will stand before God one day and give account for the way that we cultivated his character and the gospel in the lives of everybody that called this church home, though you'll have to answer to him as well, I have to answer for all of you. You will have to answer for your family's husbands. This is your responsibility. And to love your wife the way that Christ has loved the church means that you have to take the initiative to see the gospel cultivated in the life of your family. Listen, I can't say it better than than these guys. John Piper and Wayne Grudem wrote a beautiful book on this called Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And in talking about this, this aspect of, of initiative and loving your wife the way that Christ has loved the church, and they said this, mature masculinity expresses itself not in the demand to be served, but in the strength to serve and to sacrifice for the good of the family. Jesus said, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. Now listen, leadership is not a demanding demeanor. It's moving things forward towards a goal. And so we've said in the last couple of weeks that the purpose for our marriage, even with the entrance of sin, it hasn't changed. And it's to, the, to be a family, to be a unit that's about cultivating the character of God, the character of creator throughout creation, that it might reflect his glory to a world. 
that the world might look and see the way that we have loved one another and served one another and cultivated the gospel in one another and in our families and through our lives and the places that he sent us and they might see him in us. And though sin has entered the picture, the purpose hasn't changed. And so to be a husband who, who takes the initiative to lead your family and the purpose that God has given you, you have to be headed towards a goal, but it's not just this demanding, do what I say, follow me, I'm now the head, I'm now the one who leads. That's not the posture. It's not the posture of initiative and leadership. Listen, his mature masculinity does not have to initiate every action, but he feels the responsibility to provide a general pattern of initiative. In a family, the husband does not do all the thinking and planning. Listen, some of you have a struggle with this. Listen to this. He does not have to do all the thinking and planning. His leadership is to take responsibility in general to initiate and carry through the spiritual and moral planning for the family. We say in general because in specifics, there will be many times and in many areas of daily life where the wife will do all kinds of planning and initiating. But there is a tone and a pattern of initiative that should develop, which is sustained by the husband. Mature masculinity, loving your wife the way that Christ has loved the church, accepts the burden of the final say in disagreements, but it does not presume to use it in every instance. In a healthy marriage that reflects Christ, decision-making is focused on the husband, but it's not unilateral. A, a husband who is loving his wife with a crisis of a church seeks input from his wife and often follows her lead. This is implied in the love that governs the relationship, in the equality of personhood implied by being created in the image of God and in the status of being fellow heirs of the grace of life. Unilateral decision-making, saying, do what I say because I'm the husband, is not usually a mark of good leadership. It generally comes from laziness, or selfishness, or an inconsiderate and arrogant, disregardful heart. Reality of it is to love your wives with a crisis love the church means that you've got to lead your families. You have to accept the responsibility to lead your families. Just as we said that in trying to understand submission, the way that the Bible talks about it, is more focused on an attitude or a disposition of heart than it is any particular action that a wife may take in the marriage initiating and loving your wife with a crisis of the church is more about an attitude of heart, a, a responsibility that you take and you own because of what God has done and where he has placed you and a willingness to accept that responsibility and to move forward by his grace and his wisdom in leading and caring for your family. A biblical leader, they went on to say, is a servant who by God's grace and by his own example takes others further into the will and ways of God. There you go. Where are you going as a husband? What does it mean to be a husband that loves his wife or that Christ has loved his church? It means to be a leader who takes your wife and takes your family deeper and more maturely into the will and the ways of God. Do I need to do things to my wife or for her? Do I direct her or do I come alongside and serve her? A wise man leads his wife into a deeper knowledge of God and his grace and into a deeper trust in their Savior. And this frees a wife to be truly her husband's helpmate, confident that ultimately God is sovereign overall. To love your wife the way that Christ has loved the church means you love her graciously, redemptively, specifically, sacrificially, and you love her by leading her and serving her and taking the responsibility to see that his character is cultivated not only in your heart but in her life and the life of your family 
but keep reading. This gets fun. Verse 28. In the same ways, because he's not done with the husbands. Because again, we really are the genesis of much of the problem. In the same way, husbands, you should love your wives as their own bodies. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So how do you love your wife the way that you love your own body? Well, one, it says that no one ever hated his own flesh. So in the Bible, when a man and a woman get married, they become one flesh. We, we, in that beautiful moment, God does this unbelievably mysterious thing where he takes two autonomous, self-centered, and phew, all kinds of good words, um, sinners, and brings them together in some unbelievably miraculous way. They now become one flesh. And so men who disregard their wives, speak ill of them or their wives, abuse their wives, are physical with their wives, do not care for their wives, do not love their wives, do not respect their wives, do not encourage their wives, do not love their wives the way that Christ has loved the church are doing that very same thing to themselves. It's absolutely foolish. Absolutely foolish. Have you ever seen Fight Club? Have you ever seen the movie Fight Club? Remember at the end when, well, if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil it for you, but <laughs> in the end, and they're in that giant parking garage, and the story finally takes a turn, and you finally see what was happening all along, and Ed Norton's sitting there in the parking lot beating himself up and throwing himself through windows and through the ticket booth and the whole deal, and you realize that it was a second personality that he had that he was fighting with the whole time. If you walked up on somebody just absolutely pummeling themselves, punching themselves, grabbing themselves by their shirt and throwing themselves through a window, you'd think, what in the world? It's a lunacy. You make a call, police will come get him, they take him and try to get him help. This is what is happening when husbands do not love their wives with the crisis of the church. You're one person. The way that you are treating her, the way that you're being harsh with her, short with her, the meaning of her, physical with her, you're doing it to yourself. So, so how do you love your wife? Well, first of all, you, you don't treat her in those kind of manners because you're doing that same thing to yourself. But even more important, this is what I love. He says that just as you nourish and cherish yourself. Nourish and cherish. Now in the Bible, every time this word nourish is used throughout Scripture, it's referring in every occasion, but I think one, to the relationship between a, a mother and a child that's nursing. It's this intimate relationship of nourishing <clears throat> and caring for the needs of this particular child the way a mother does a newborn infant. And so what Paul is saying is that one of the responsibilities that we have and one of the ways that we love and lead our wives is by being responsible to nourish and care for and be responsible for the needs of our wives. And this takes on a, a double-sided thing. It's a physical and a spiritual thing. There's a physical thing that we are the ones ultimately responsible to make sure that our family and our wives are provided for physically, that all that they need of food, shelter, clothing, all that they need for life and, and is taken care of and that we're the ones that are ultimately responsible to make sure that, that that's, that's there, that they're provided for, that they're cared for, that they can be nourished physically. And look, we, we don't have time to, to go into all the exceptions of, you know, well, I'm getting a PhD or I'm in grad school or 
You know, I got hurt on the job. There are all kinds of opportunities, exceptions, and moments when sometimes that this is not the way it looks at home. But you know what? Even when those exceptions come into place, the general attitude and sense of responsibility can still be on the husband. Though at that time, the wife might be the one that's actually making the majority of the money to make sure that the needs are met that the responsibility is still in the man and in, in his heart to, to lead his wife in different ways during this period of time. Did you know that? He doesn't just immediately lump that responsibility then onto her. He still carries the responsibility for it. So we're not going to build rules based on exceptions. We're going to try to understand what God is saying and that the reality of it is no matter what the circumstance is in your life and in your time, you as husbands are still responsible to make sure your family and your wives are nourished physically and cared for. But there's a spiritual side to this too. You are the ones responsible to make sure that your wives and your family are nourished spiritually. It means you are the ones responsible to make sure that the gospel is taking root and that the realities of what God has done for us in Christ are taking root in her heart, in her life, and growing and maturing. It means you're the one that's supposed to take the responsibility and the initiative to make sure that your family is growing in a deeper understanding of who God is and his word. It's your responsibility. You are now, like we said last week, the pastors of a very small church, depending upon your family. Some families in here are larger than others, so your church is a little bit bigger. But you are pastors of a church, and you are the ones responsible for the spiritual nourishment and well-being of your wife and of your family. Now, what I'm not saying is that you have to go home and immediately take out, you know, Wayne Grudem's systematics and sit down and, and be able to take your wife chapter by chapter through systematics and, and make sure that she's understanding and memorizing all the things and all that kind of stuff. It's just, just you know, open up the Bible. Read it. Psalm? Proverbs? We take the questions that we have at the end of the sermon from what we did on Sunday and sit down and, man, well, let's talk about what we talked about on Sunday. What struck you? What did you struggle with? What did you understand? What did it, what did it mean? What, what does it really say here? Just do something. Do something. And here, you know why most of us don't? I'll, I'll let you in. There's a couple reasons why most of us don't. The chief reason why most of us fail at this as husbands, to, to care for and nourish our, our family spiritually, is because we're not being nourished spiritually. We're, we're, we're malnourished, hungry, we're not spending any time in the presence of God and growing and maturing and, and deepening our understanding of, of the gospel and how its implications are applied to our lives and change our understandings of who we are. We're not growing in relationship to who God is and not maturing and being nourished and taking the responsibility to care for our own lives. So to look at the reality that we're supposed to care for, love, and nourish our family, we're like, in the world do I do that? You don't know because you don't take care of yourself because you're malnourished, but the responsibility doesn't go away. This is still your responsibility. So some of you are in, in, in groups we do throughout the week and you've got books or material that we go through. Take it home. Go through it with your wife. You don't know what to do, start right there with what you're doing. You don't know what to do, start with what we do on Sunday. You don't know what to do, start with just opening up the Bible to whatever we talked about and say, let's just read it and, and go. But do something because you're responsible to nourish them. You're responsible to see that their souls are being cultivated, being cared for, being developed. It's your responsibility. Paul said also, you, you have to nourish. And, 
And he said, we're to cherish. Cherish our wives, just as we cherish our own body. Now, this is a really interesting word. Every time we talk about cherishing, in the New Testament in particular, and especially when Peter uses it when he talks about husband and wives, what he's talking about in this aspect of cherishing your wife or cherishing something is dealing with its preciousness. That there is a preciousness to your wife that you are to cherish, that you are to care for, that you are to relate to her in light of. You are to treat her as precious. You see, when you are with your wife and you're at church or out at dinner or out at a movie or at school with the kids or whatever you're doing, do people get the sense that your wife is precious to you? Do you love her and treat her in any way in particular, honor her in any particular way that people who know you would get a sense of the preciousness of your wife in your eyes? You see, this, this idea of, of preciousness and, and of cherishing our wives carries a, a physical and a spiritual component as well. Physically, we, we value our wives as precious and we treat our wives as precious and we love our wives as precious when you know what? Physically, we just say no to all the other options that we have coming at us throughout a day and throughout a week. We look at our friends and for the fifth time during the week, we say, no, we're not going to go out and play cards tonight or no, I'm not going to spend another $150 on a golf course today to spend time with these four guys. Say, you know what? I'm going to stay and I'm going to know you and I'm going to spend time with you and I'm going to love you and I'm, I'm going to get to know you and how, how I can love you specifically, uniquely and, and graciously. I'm going to spend time with you. I want to be with you. I want to love you. I want to... I want to be together with you. We physically treat our wives as precious when we show them how much we love them and care for them and their priority in our lives. It's difficult because it means you say no to a lot of other things that that seem right and good and fun and enjoyable. I mean, let me ask you a couple questions. You can diagnose yourself on this one. Does your wife believe that apart from Jesus, she is the most precious thing to you in your life. You don't want to ask her. You don't want to wait till I'm done. You want to ask her. You make a thousand decisions on a daily basis that do not honor your wife or women as precious. Why? Because we fail to see them the way that God sees them. We fail to see them the way that gospel has transformed them and recreated them. Instead, we allow ourselves to redefine and reshape the way that we understand who they are. We do not honor our wives as precious or treat our wives as precious when we try to put them in the place of our mothers. You do this all the time. Come home from work, you come home from your day, and you whine and you want her to cuddle up and rub your hair and tell you everything's going to be okay and give you all this kind of sympathy. And She's not your mom. She's not your mom, seriously. All kinds of problems start when you start having your wife treat you as your mom. When you quit acting like a man that's worthy of the respect and the love that you are seeking from her and you put her in the place to treat you like your mom, unfortunately, she'll start behaving like your mom. Unless your name is Oedipus, doesn't turn out well for you. It didn't for him either. Do not treat our wives as precious and cherish 
who they are and see them through the lens of what the gospel has done for them in thousands of different ways. When we demean them and make them objects of affection and desire and, and lust and ill intention. When we fail to see that they've been created in the image of God and they're co-heirs of the grace and the riches of God in Christ with us and instead we look at them and treat them as objects that we would use to get from them what we want from them and discard as we get what we want or they don't give us what we want. We treat them in any thousands of ways and tell them in many conscious and unconscious ways that they're not precious. We don't cherish them. That we don't really love them the way that God has loved us in Christ. And this starts, this starts before you get married. So if you're not married in here, if you're a guy, take notes. This is going to be gold. Here's what you need to do. You ready? They're all in the front couple of rows, I think. I'll stand back here. Wives can chime in here and tell me what you think. Get a job. Provide for yourself. Know your Bible. Love Jesus. Begin to pray for the woman that God is going to bring you. Begin to prepare for the life that God is calling you to lead her family in. Begin to get the answers to the questions that she's going to have because it's your responsibility to be able to nourish her and cherish her and teach her and love her and cultivate a love for the gospel in her. And so that one day, here or wherever you may be, that God brings this woman into your life. You become connected and you're clear about the fact that you love her and you would like to marry her and she reciprocates. You can say, great, I've been praying for you for years. I've got a job. I've got money put away for the house. I love my Bible. I have a feeling that I know where God is taking me and where he'll be taking us as a family. I'm so glad that he's brought you here. I've been waiting for you. Let's go. Now, you walk into that circumstance and that situation. This is a question for the wives. How difficult or how steep is the hill to climb to learn to trust and respect your husband? How difficult is that hill? Is anybody turning that deal down? If you are, that's fine. I mean, we'll, we'll work on you too. We're generally much more harsh hopefully, in time, on the men. And the hope is that as the church continues to take shape and develop, you see, we, we've been unbelievably blessed. I'll try to encourage you with this. We've been unbelievably blessed by some of the families and some of the men that, and, and some of the wives, really, that God has brought here that I've gotten to know over the last few years that I didn't know uh, before we started this. And we have an unbelievably rich and deep well of families who have gone through what it is to love one another where that Christ has loved his church and have sought to raise and build families that reflect his glory and have gone through all of the mistakes that many of us are just beginning to make or have made in the past. And many of you sit here looking forwards towards that opportunity and we have an unbelievably deep well of people who can help you understand what it means to prepare yourself to be this kind of husband or to be this kind of wife. And my hope is that as years go and as time takes shape, that this place will be full of men who are wanting to learn about what it means to be a man, to be a man who reflects the image of Christ and to be a man who will be able to love his wife with a Christ has loved the church. That's my hope. And, and I think, I think as I've, I've watched people who have, who have begun to cultivate this and this has become a reality in their lives and been a reality in their church, you have no problem with finding the ladies to fill the seats. Because as men come and are trained and cultivated and matured and love God 
serve God, serve their city, want to see God made known in their lives and through all that he calls them to do and all that he calls them to be. God has many amazing women prepared for them. And so my hope is that this becomes a place that you know, begins to reflect that, that our lives, that our marriages, that our families begin to reflect a priority of, of the gospel and its power to transform how we understand who we are and how we understand what it means to be a husband, to be a wife, that our families and that our, our marriages may be reflections of his wisdom. It may be reflections of his character. It may be reflections of his grace and of his mercy and of his sacrifice. And ultimately, to people who are confused about what it means to know Jesus, they'd be a reflection of his character and of his wisdom. And they might come to know him because of what they see lived out in the families and in the marriages in this church. I mean, that's the hope. And that's the hope. And so, I'm going to pray for us as we, as we finish up. I, I was going to go a little bit deeper on you and, and, and beat you over the head about being dads too, but I'll, I'll spare you um, this morning and we'll, we'll pick a different, a different week to go on that, but let me pray for you as we, uh, as we wrap up. Well, let it never be forgotten that our understanding of what it means to be a husband and really what it means to be a wife doesn't begin the minute we get married. It doesn't begin as we get into counseling before we get married or counseling after we get married. It begins with our understanding of what you've done for us in the cross. We thank you that, honestly, as a husband, and, and you know, Lord, we, we spent most of the time on the husbands this morning, that as a husband, your responsibility and your call of, of leadership and sacrifice and servanthood in my own heart if I'm honest is overwhelming um, it's and sometimes I, I can feel defeated um, and I can feel like I can feel like just letting go and giving up oh, but thank you that that's the posture that I need to be in to really be able to love my wife the way that you have loved me and to recognize that in and of myself I can't do it but it's at that very place that your strength is made known in my weakness, that your glory is made known as I seek not my own glory and my own capacities to be this special kind of man, but I trust in who you have made me and the grace that you have given us and the strength that you have given us in your spirit to be the person that you've called me to be, that your gospel and your grace is sufficient to be the husband and for the wives to be the wives that you've called us to be. Lord, help us to find ourselves in places of, um, of deficiency when it comes to this so that we might seek you and might be more dependent on you and might want more of you in our marriages and in our families. Now, let us not chase after these things in our own power. We're leaning on our own wisdom and depending on our own strength. Lord, let us be men and women who humble ourselves before you, who recognize that you have given us all that we need for life and godliness and we seek the capacity to be the men and women you've called us to be in your message of grace and your power in the gospel. And that as we begin to seek you and serve one another, you might be made known and your greatness might be reflected. Your character might be vindicated as wise. Lord, and in that, marriages will have great joy. There'll be fountains of unbelievable joy 
Unbelievable power. Families will be cultivated that reflect your character and your wisdom for generations. That's what we want. That's what we pray for for generations in this place. That families will be cultivated that reflect an absolute dependency on you and reflect the beauty of your grace in Jesus. All this, Lord, that your name might be made great in the city. Amen.